0: Welcome back to the Guidehouse Transportation Insights Podcast. I'm joined today by uh, Saji Evbinata, uh Christian Albertson, and Ryan Citron. Uh, our other colleague, Scott, is out today with uh, a defective voice uh, after catching something from his uh, toddler. So uh, Saji, let's get started with you today. Sure. Uh,
1: yeah, good afternoon, guys. So um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm I thought I'd uh, mention um, some interesting uh, robotaxi developments, uh, particularly in in Asia today. Um, There's just a few that have, have recently just uh, come come to light. Um, so, so, starting in in China as usual. So, um, Shanghai um, SAIC have um, recently just started um, a trial of a robotaxi fleet in in uh, Shanghai, um, uh, in a, a particular district called uh, Jiading. Uh, which is a sub- suburban district. Um, the purpose of this uh, particular um, pilot um, is to really test out the commercial potential of Robotaxi services. Um, and they're looking to, or um, well, they're aiming to try and commercialize their services uh, fully by 2025. Um, so, um, the, the vehicles that they're using, um, they're starting off with a fleet of 20 vehicles, are based on uh, one of SAIC's vehicles um, called the Marvel R, uh, which is an, an electric SUV. Um, it's been fitted uh, with um, a level four self driving stack, which has been developed by Momenta, who are a self driving startup based um, in Beijing. Uh, and SAIC is one of their major investors. Um, so, Memento, Yeah, they developed the, the the software and the hardware solutions for the project um, and the uh, computing platform. Um, so, riders in, in Shanghai um, they can use the SAIC Mobility app um, to, to summon the vehicle, um, and um, they are testing out different travel scenarios in in the city uh, during the trial. <clears throat> so, they're looking to um, expand this pilot substantially. Um, um, and um, try out the uh, the robot taxi service in other uh, um, Chinese cities. Um, and as I said, to, to really validate um, the, the commercial application of, of robotaxis. taxis. So they're looking to try and double the fleet by the end of the year, um, and and then also start a trial in a nearby city uh, called Su- Suzhou, I believe it's uh, pronounced. Um, before expanding out to Shenzhen and. Um, uh, by then expanding the fleet to around two hundred vehicles um, at the same time um so seoul um, the the actual uh, metropolitan government of the city um they started um, operation of, of just three uh, rubber taxis uh, to the public um uh, which is operating in a district uh, of seoul um uh, known as uh, sangnam or Sangam, I should say. Um, so that started at, at uh, early this month uh, they uh, it, it uh, was a, a one hundred twenty five million dollar scheme uh, starting with uh, with with uh, three vehicles for, for the first phase of the project um, so the vehicles are operating um, in in the sangnam district uh, taking passengers uh, around uh, nearby apartment complexes and office areas and other commercial destinations in in, in the area um, so um, the the, the Seoul uh, metropolitan government have, have stated that they, they see this as a, the first step uh, in commercialising um, automated vehicles. Um, they're looking to also uh, bring on a few more vehicles uh, this year, later this year, um, as well, which includes um, a self-driving bus. Um, and the, the plans of the city are to expand operations um, to have around 50 vehicles in, over the next five years. Uh, at the moment the service is free, and um, but from next year they'll be looking to to charge customers uh, for for the service. Um, the vehicles um they they appeared to it, it wasn't stated what vehicles they were, but it looks like they're Kia e Neros which have been um, uh, fitted with uh, self-driving tech. Um, the vehicles themselves have been developed and uh, provided by um, a couple of Korean startups called uh, 42 dot and SVM so um, SVD SV sorry 42 dot um, so they developed the, um, um, the the transportation platform so is that me oh, sorry okay sorry yeah sorry uh, 42 dot developed the the, uh, the, uh, the transportation platform um, and they developed the app uh, by which the, the customers summers some of the vehicles um, they have uh, their own own um, um, uh, portal, which or, or dashboard, and it en- enables them to monitor uh, various aspects of the of the system, understanding the demand um, routes um, and uh, statistical analysis of um, operation of these vehicles. Um, the uh, they, they're also looking to uh, build um, HD mapping for, for these vehicles. Um, and and there's something else that probably we just need. To, I'll need to confirm another time because it was based on a, a Korean translation. But um, it seems that they're also they've developed um, the um, the technology stack um, in house. It seems, uh, but without using lidar, so they're they're relying on uh, cameras and, and other systems to support uh, the self driving of their vehicles. Um, SVM, um, so they've been developing the the AI software for for the vehicles um, using a platform that they called uh, Armstrong. Um, And finally um, in Japan, so Nissan have been, um, they've been trialing uh, um, a a, a small fleet of um, self-driving robotaxis. Um, They're based on uh, Nissan's Env two hundred, so it's a, a minivan um, which has been adapted for for self driving. Um, so, so yeah, this is the only uh, one of these trials which is not based on a on the crossover or, or USV or SUV. Sorry, um, Nissan been working with um, a local uh, mobile carrier called NTT DoCoMo to, 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 to run this trial um, in a small area of uh, Yokohama, which is right adjacent to uh, to, to Tokyo. Um, so they have, like, 23 pickup, uh, designated pickup points um, by which customers have to be able to... have to, to uh, summon the vehicles from and have as a destination in order to be allocated one of these vehicles. Um, so um, uh, for, I think for now, um, operators who... Um, sorry, the operation of this uh, of this trial will have safety drivers um, at the moment, Um Obviously, in case there's any uh, un- uh, unforeseen uh, circumstances, um, but of course they're, they're looking to, uh, to, 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 to 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 no longer rely on these uh, safety drivers. So, one of the um, reasons for uh, running this trial in Japan, one of the reasons, the key um, drivers for uh, um, uh, robotaxi services, is uh, Japan's aging population, which has resulted in a shortage of uh, drivers for, for uh, ride hailing services um, and also it's created a demand for these services because the aging population uh, still have a, a, a strong need to, to have their own personal mobility um, so, um, so yeah so, so three so three interesting trials which have recently been launched in, in, in eastern Asia um, yeah looking to I think test out the commercial potential of rubber taxis um, and uh, and also meet uh, needs of their, their local populations.
0: Hey, Saji, you mentioned the uh, for the Nissan trial in Japan. Yeah. Um, there's fixed pickup and drop-off points, so it's a, it, looks, it sounds like a fixed route system. Are the um, the trials in Korea, in Seoul, and in uh, uh, Shanghai, or was it Shanghai or Beijing?
1: Yeah, uh, Shanghai. Shanghai. Yeah. Uh,
0: are, are those are those trials also? uh fixed route operations or are any of them doing um are you know more like ride hailing or taxi services you know just arbitrary point to point uh operations
1: so some of soul um i believe that that particular trial there is a, a designated route so i think there's only particular roads that they uh, that the vehicles have can drive drive along um i think that um that particular district of Seoul called uh, Sangam. Um, I think that is um, a designated testbed for for, um, automated vehicles. Um, So there is a limitation on on where passengers can uh, hail and uh, ride to on on these vehicles. Um, Shanghai, um, it's uh, operating in in a district uh, called Jiang Jading. I believe. And it's, I think at the moment it's not clear whether it's a, a fixed route or if there are fixed pickup and drop off points. Um, but I think it's a, of a limited, a limited size area by which the, through which these vehicles can drive through.
0: Yeah. I think uh, all, you know, all of the, the pilots we've seen to date globally um, are, you know, within limited geographic areas. <clears throat> but we yeah. I think we've seen a mix of um, different, operational models, you know, between fixed route operations and, uh, point to point operations, you know, to where a passenger can go from anywhere within that operational area to any other point. Um, obviously yeah. the, the fixed, fixed route is easier to do. You know, you, you always know where, uh, you know, what, what you're going to be dealing with. Uh, there's not, there's le- there, there's fewer, fewer variables involved with a fixed route operation. So it's easier to implement and get that up and running sooner. Yeah.
1: Yeah. In, in the case of Nissan in, in, Japan, in uh, Yokohama, um, I, I think that that area is only two square kilometers. So it, it is a, a fairly small area. Um, they're, they're just like dipping their toe in the water, I'd, I'd imagine. Uh,
2: question for you, Sajj. So it looks like a lot of projects are, Coming into the Asia region, um, would you say that consumers in Asia are potentially more comfortable or open to using robo-taxis compared to to other consumers, potentially in North America or Europe, or or does it just happen to be where more of the suppliers are are testing it or any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, um, I I think in the case of China, I I think think at least in the, the major cities where robotaxis had been deployed i think perhaps the population there is probably a bit more familiar with the concept um i, I know that in um japan and korea and korea for these trials i think the, the 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 local people there were probably less familiar or comfortable with the concept um specifically um in japan um i think um they, they were really looking to see the um the customer feedback from the older customers, the more mature, uh, older age customers who are who are riding these vehicles, and um, one report did mention that I think they were a little bit apprehensive of using these services, but after two or three rides, they were very comfortable, and um, you know they were, they were they were reading their newspapers and uh, no longer just um, you know over, trying to oversee the um, the operation of the vehicle. So, uh, so I think, yeah, that there, there is still a degree of probably unfamiliarity, uh, uh, probably a, a little lack of trust in the vehicles, um, in particular in, in Korea and in Japan, but it seems that probably once passengers start to ride around them for a while, they, they, get accustomed to, to the experience. Kind of no matter the region. I think so. I think yeah. so. Um, I, I think, yeah, perhaps that, that may be, um, a, a, a common theme that, um, uh, initially, you know, people are not used to the concepts uh, until they've ridden around in them for a while and just see them as, yeah, as as long as they don't experience any negative uh, incidents, um, they become mm-hmm. relatively comfortable with with the uh, scenario. And, and, and yeah, that uh, seems to be
0: the case everywhere where they've done um, automated driving pilots. Where wherever uh, you know, when people are a little unsure at first, but once they've ridden in the vehicle, especially with a safety driver. Um, then you know they they become very quickly become comfortable with it. Um, you know the the question is you know will they remain comfortable with it once the safety driver is pulled out of the vehicle? Yeah.
2: that's another question entirely. Yeah.
0: yeah. So far, it seems to be working for Waymo in in Arizona. Um, you know the 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 people that are reported riding in their their limited driverless operations in Arizona. Uh, seem to quite like the experience uh, for the most part. There's been a few, few issues, you know, with vehicles getting stuck and not quite the vehicle sometimes, you know, stopping at an intersection, not knowing what to do next, but um, it's, it's definitely um, for the most part, it's been pretty positive. And in Las Vegas where uh, Motional has been operating uh, vehicles on the lift platform for three years now, almost three, you know, over three years, they, they, Currently have a 4.95 rating on Lyft for their vehicles, so uh, I think uh, I think most most people generally like the experience. Yeah. All right, Ryan, why don't you go next?
2: Thanks, Sam. Uh, so news on on my side: uh, GoGro launched a new Second Life battery initiative to uh, use their used electric scooter batteries in a a new, very interesting application, and that will be um, used to power smart parking meters in Taiwan. So they partnered with a company called Shenming Technology to to develop these meters, which run on the used swappable batteries from Gobro that are no longer optimized for for their scooters, but can still be utilized as an energy source. Um, In terms of how it works, the battery essentially just goes right into the uh, smart parking meter or the pole and it powers a camera as well as a number of other sensors in the smart parking meter and and then the meter can take payment for parking can read license plates uh, monitor availability of parking and, and provide parking analytics for cities as well um, the batteries are estimated to last about 20 days to, that they can power uh, these devices before they need to be swapped for, for a fresh battery Uh, Currently being deployed in New Taipei City in Taiwan. Uh, The the smart parking meters will be operational in early 2022 with uh, potentially 6,000 additional meters rolling out across Taiwan by the end of 2022. Uh, So, you know, pretty interesting application here for Second Life batteries. I think when um, we typically think about Second Life, we often uh, look at energy storage for wind and solar or mitigating demand surges at EV charging stations, um, you know, putting them into smart parking meters is not something that typically you've, has been talked about very much in, in these kind of applications. And and obviously, the smaller and kind of more modular nature of electric scooter batteries opens up uh, some different opportunities compared to um, full size EV batteries. Uh, really seeing a lot of integration with the smart cities concept here. You know, something that I used to look into a lot, where it was smart parking systems where. Uh, you know, a sensor would be buried into the pavement and that would detect when a, when a car comes or not. You know, very expensive, hard to replace the battery, you gotta dig up the pavement. Um, so this is a very interesting kind of new way to to get at that and provide analytics to cities on you know how many cars are coming into each space, how many are how long are they staying and, and you know to help cities plan their, their parking and transportation systems. So uh, you know GoGro now has built up close to two gigawatt hours of batteries on their networks. So you know a lot of possibilities to uh, deploy um, their second life batteries in different applications. Uh, they've pretty much been operational since 2015, so they're just getting to that point now where uh, you know some significant numbers are starting to to become uh, unusable in, in their first life application for super high performance scooters. So we'll see. Uh, we'll see what other applications they can figure out after this as well.
0: So this sounds like this is one of the first applications of these smaller batteries. Uh, and, you know, for gen- in general, for Second Life uh, battery use cases up till now, they've been very limited, mainly because we haven't had enough EVs reach the end of life. So we just haven't had enough scale of, of available um, used batteries to, to put into these u- applications. It's mostly been small pilots. Uh, how long does Gogoro expect their batteries to last in general um, when in normal use?
2: Yeah, I'd have to double-check with them in, in conversations in the past. My understanding is around sort of that six- to seven-year range is, is sort of what they expect to be the most useful life for their batteries.
0: Which, okay. That's
2: my understanding, yeah. So uh, probably a little bit shorter than, than what you'd expect for, for a car.
0: So um, presumably these, <coughs> these smart parking meters are also using wireless connectivity um, to communicate back to – Uh, main control center and and provide that information about availability of parking. Uh, Is that, is that why they're, um, you know, not use, you know, not just wired up uh, and using batteries instead?
2: Yeah. So the the data goes straight to the cloud and using um, batteries means you don't have to pay for costly grid updates. Um, So it's just totally disconnected from the grid and all the power comes from the battery so it just mm-hmm. kind of avoids that extra cost and complexity when, when setting up the smart parking meter mm.
1: and R- R- ryan i think i understand how the, the 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 batteries are recharged um in in the in the meter
2: they're not they're swapped out um they'll last about 20 days uh operationally powering the smart parking meter on a full charge and then uh Gogoro will come bring in a fresh battery that's been charged <laughs> somewhere else and just pop that one in and it lasts you know about three weeks Oh, I see. Yeah, so they don't so, charge so, the battery in the actual unit. Yeah, they just swap out fresh ones every three weeks.
1: Yeah. Okay, and so so the main benefit here is probably reduced um, cost of installation of, of these uh, of these meters. Yeah, not having to wire it and, and connect it to the grid. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So it's it's all it's, it's basically completely standalone um, in once it's yeah. in operation.
2: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Okay. So um, then- are the Oh God sorry I was just gonna ask now
3: when they're looking at these on the streets and everything, wouldn't it be outside on the streets? I'm not talking where you're looking into parking garages or things like that, but outside on the street, wouldn't it make sense to have some sort of solar power to recharge them so to extend that three every three weeks swapping them out?
2: You could um, I guess for them it's quite easy to, to swap them out and they can charge the batteries wherever. They need to, so I'm not sure that it's all that needed, but uh, that might be something that they're looking into. I, I know they have looked into that as far as uh, putting some some on site generation at their swapping stations that they use for their their scooters. So certainly, that's a possibility. And like you said, Christian, I could extend the life, so maybe they only have to replace the batteries every you know five weeks or something. Um, could make it a bit easier. But uh, I guess that would be a cost benefit. Does the price of solar? outweigh, you know, somebody coming to just swap a battery, which takes 10 seconds. Um,
0: Yeah. So it may not
2: be. Yeah,
0: Yeah, I know, uh, you know, in in a lot of cities now, uh, for curbside parking, you know, they've replaced traditional parking meters with um, basically some sort of pay through an app system or, you know, have, uh, you know, you could, like, for example, here in in Ann Arbor, where I live, uh, they have, Uh, they have the the zone signs on there Uh, you put in, you can either use the app or on every block they'll have one, um, one sort of meter that you can go to and pay there if you don't want to use the app. And those are typically solar powered uh, the, Mm -hmm. the, the, the single meter. But of course those also don't have the sensors, which can provide a municipality with that information. You talked about it, but where, you know, where parking's being utilized, where parking's available and you know that that sort of data, when you've got the sensors on, at each parking space available, that can tell you where where spaces are available. Um, that can be fed back to drivers in real time to uh, so that they spend less time driving around trying to find a parking space. They can they can just go directly to where there's an open space.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think it's a very very similar yeah themes in London as well. Um, I think one, one of the um, one of the issues in London that they're trying to deal with is just the proliferation of, of what we call street furniture. So they're trying to remove all of the hardware that's installed in the streets. Uh, they're relying on people to use the app to to pay for parking and they rely on uh, park parking wardens to uh, to enforce and to, to make sure that um, everybody who's, um, uh who's paid for the app has paid for it, who's used the app to pay for their parking. Um, and this data is fed back into the apps to provide um, information to, to drivers on, on availability of, of parking spaces.
0: All right. Christian, what's going on in the air this week? Well, kind of. this is kind of a, a two-for-one special
3: today, I guess. Um, so in the last few months, especially, we've had uh, a lot of space tourism, we've had Uh, I I think last weekend we had Michael Strahan, a retired New York giant, went up on a Jeff Bezos flight into space, spent his 10 minutes in space. Um, And we're getting a lot more of these with SpaceX eventually looking at, when they're fully built out and ready to go, about 395 flights to space every year. So the question comes up okay so now all of these people are paying billions of dollars to go to space what does this do for the environment and when you look at it the majority of the uh, pollution done by these rockets is up into the the higher uh, parts of the atmosphere so you get a lot of stuff that's that's up there and you get um one comparison here says uh a single flight of the SpaceX would generate the carbon footprint equivalent of 278 people combined. So that's one flight to get these people up in, in space for three to four minutes of weightlessness. Um, and But the engines are running off of kerosene, liquid oxygen, and, car- and exhaust is carbon dioxide. Um, looks like about 440... Tons of fuel is used for SpaceX, which releases about 4,000 tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere per year, is what they're looking at with this. Um, And that's if they're only at every two weeks. So how do you get rid of this carbon dioxide that you're putting in the air? Well, Elon Musk uh, tweeted Monday that they're going to start pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. (coughs) Using special processes, making it back into jet fuel or into rocket fuel, and using it for their future launches. So literally, they're going to be pulling the the rocket fuel out of thin air. Um, there's an, another couple of companies out there that are looking at the same thing. What they do is they use uh, hydro, solar, and wind power to power these machines that are basically there to pull the carbon dioxide out of the, out of the atmosphere send it through the system, and when it comes out on the other end, it's jet fuel. And so there's companies doing that right now. So Elon Musk is going to use this and and set it up so he can pull out his rocket fuel and produce his rocket fuel, basically put it back in the rocket and send it up and pull the same carbon dioxide out of the air and convert it into rocket fuel and and use this as a circular system to basically produce the, the fuel needed for these rockets um out of the waste that's produced by these rockets. Um what's really funny is his his tweet on this Monday was just perfect. It was SpaceX is starting to, a program to take CO2 out of the atmosphere and turn it into rocket fuel. And then he says, "Please join if interested." So I think he's still looking for people to to, to join the company and and help out with this, but it's a really good idea to do it so you have that that circular you know, you burn it, you pull it back out, you clean it, put it back in the rocket, you burn it <laughs> and, and, and just keep going on that circle. Um, and the one last thing they're doing is, is I don't know if you guys know, but there's an X prize that uh, Elon Musk put out there again. Uh, it's a hundred million dollar prize for the carbon removal technology. So this is what he's kind of betting on is other companies. Getting in with that X Prize, trying to figure out how to pull that carbon dioxide out of the air, so he can use it as his rocket fuel to send more people to space.
2: Hey, Christian, this might be too technical of a question, but so if I'm understanding this right, so the exhaust coming out of the the flight, they want to take, they want to capture that and reuse it in a way to as fuel to continually power this the spaceship. Is that right?
3: Yeah, so well they're not going to re- capture it as it's going up. It's it's what they're going to be doing is the the CO2 that is placed in the air by any aircraft, any rocket that's launched, uh your cars, anything. What they're doing is is trying to scrub that out of the air and use that to produce new uh jet fuel and rocket fuel. Um there's one company out there that's also trying to use it as uh automobile fuel for large trucks.
2: Are you able to provide any explanation on kind of how that works, like how they would do that? I've looked into it a little bit.
3: I am not sure on the technical side of it. I know they they they, yeah. they run, it through, run
0: it through, run it through all. They, kinds they, of stuff. they they use a, a reaction. Uh, forget the uh, uh, the Sabatier reaction, um, and basically yeah. what it is, uh, you take CO two and hydrogen, uh, put it pass it across a, a catalyst plate, and it converts it to. Um, methane and water. Um, so then you can burn the methane uh, and that turns back into CO2 and uh, and water again. Um, the problem with this is that it's not I mean it, it's a very it's, at its core, it's a very simple reaction. but it's only a simple reaction if you have absolutely pure carbon dioxide, absolutely pure, hydrogen, and nothing else in there which can poison the catalyst. Um, and so the, the length of time that you're able to continue doing this reaction uh, and producing um, producing methane and, and water um, may be fairly limited. You know, when, when uh, SpaceX first talked about doing this, uh, they were talking about doing this on Mars where the atmosphere is predominantly CO2. Uh, but, of course, you know, to do it on Mars – or even to do it on earth, (laughs) you still have to also have the hydrogen. You you can't, it's not just a matter of simply extracting CO2 from the atmosphere. You also have the hydrogen, have to have the hydrogen to mix with the CO2 to make the methane that you can burn. Um, So, you know, it's, it's a lot like many things that Elon Musk proposes. It's a lot more complicated than it seems on the surface.
3: Yes. Yeah. And one of the funniest things about it is, it takes a lot of electricity to uh-huh. do it. And that's why, um, a lot of these companies are going with the, the solar, the, the water and the, um, the, or the hydropower and the wind power to provide clean energy to do this. Um, Elon says this is important for Mars, but the question about it is, I don't see a lot of, uh, hydropower, solar power or, or wind power. On Mars, that you're going to get that electricity from, to, to make this work on Mars. So, how it's going to work there, I'm not sure yet. But that's what they're trying to do here: is use a clean energy to clean the atmosphere, and use that again to to fuel vehicles. Uh, I, but I think it's funny because this is this comes up right at the time where uh, you know we've got a Chinese billionaire up in space right now um we've got uh uh, the replacement for the hubble is about ready to take off um we have you know elon musk virgin galactic and and jeff bezos that are all rushing to get people in space as much as fast as possible so it's it you know there's quite a bit of of exhaust that comes out of these things um so we'll see if it works or not. But I, th- I think it's funny that it, you know, he realized, okay, we're we're making a lot of pollution here. We better figure out a way to clean it up as we go.
2: Did Did you say, Christian, it was one flight to space for three to four people was the same CO two as two hundred and seventy eight people? two hundred and seventy
3: eight people's carbon footprint for an entire year
2: for an entire year? <laughs> yeah, like that one flight.
0: No, no. So- it's- So what you're saying is that point-to-point rocket launches that can get you to anywhere on the planet in half an hour may not necessarily be the most environmentally conscious way to travel? Not
3: uh, not (laughs) unless they have a giant slingshot. Okay. Uh, Which actually there's a company working on too, but I wouldn't want to – I'm
2: sure
0: there is. Um, yeah, it's,
2: I've always thought that was a really interesting thing. You know, I, I, I kind of hope nobody does this analysis because it wouldn't look good uh, from an optics perspective. But I did wonder, you know, with the SpaceX emissions, how much of that offsets the saved emissions that Tesla creates? And is it, you know, in the negative as, as far if you weigh those two together? I, I don't know if anyone's looked at that, but it'd be very interesting to to find that,
3: out. Yeah, I agree. That would be very interesting to look at.
0: Yeah, well, a lot of a lot of the uh, CO two savings from all the Tesla vehicles on the road has also been wiped out by uh, the time that Elon spends in his Gulfstream G six hundred and fifty as well. So, <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, So, um, some interesting stuff going on with, with, uh, fuel for rockets, uh, that, you know, if we do actually want to go back and forth between here and Mars, we, we are going to have to figure out some solutions because we can't take all the fuel with us from here. Um, and this, this may be part of the solution, but we'll, we'll see if it, how, how much of it, it actually is. All right. Um, thanks Christian. Um, so for myself, um, over the last couple of weeks uh, we've continued to see an acceleration of announcements from legacy automakers on their EV plans. Um, there's been a lot of stuff that's come out, you know, at the, the LA auto show when we, when we, when we last, uh, uh, or a couple of times ago when we spoke um, uh, all of the new vehicle announcements at the LA auto show for the first time were EVs uh, since then uh, you know, at that time, um, Toyota Uh, was doing an event that was apart from the show and they were showing off their new BZ four X, which is their first purpose built EV that's launching next spring. Uh, It's a, it's a compact crossover Uh, at that time. This, and this was barely four weeks ago. They were, they still had a target of selling 2 million battery electric vehicles globally by 2030. Uh, A couple of days ago, Toyota had an event in Japan with their CEO, Akio Toyota, uh, showing off 15 um, electric vehicles for the Toyota and Lexus brands that are going to be coming to market in the coming years um, and <clears throat> he said at that time that um, for toyota uh, for the, the for the whole company they plan to have three and a half million they plan to be selling three and a half million EVs a year by 2030 so that's nearly double what they were saying just four weeks ago and out of that, uh, by 2030, they expect one million of those to be electric vehicles from the Lexus brand um, in North America, Europe, and China, the biggest markets for Lexus. They are targeting being 100% electric for Lexus by 2030, and globally, uh, 100% electric for Lexus by 2035. So, you know, Toyota, which has been making a lot of noise about, you know, not trying trying to convince governments not to mandate um, fully electric vehicles, uh, saying that uh, hybrids can and plug-in hybrids can still be a major part of the solution in reducing CO2 emissions from ground transportation. Um, they Even they are seeing that the, the reality is that the, the market is shifting towards electric. Uh, regardless of what uh, governments are doing, there's, there's more and more demand coming from consumers for electric vehicles. Uh, so they're, um, they're getting ready to build um, a wide array of EVs from small cars and crossovers to uh, larger crossovers. And they even, and, uh, they even showed uh, a couple of sports cars and a pickup truck at that event uh, a couple of, earlier this week. Um, in addition to that, we also have uh, Ford Ford. Um, which currently has one EV, uh, the Mustang Mach-E, which is being built at its plant in Coatalan, Mexico. Um, They initially tooled that up for production capacity of about 50,000 units a year. They have already increased that. They've already surpassed that for the first year of production and are approaching 60,000 for the first year of production. And uh, their plan until fairly recently had been that that same plant in Coatalan uh, starting in 2023, would also produce electric versions of the Ford Explorer and Lincoln Aviator, two of their very popular three-row crossovers. Um, that has now changed. Uh, instead, they're going to build those two vehicles at a different plant somewhere in North America, uh, and they will crank up production of the Mach-E to 200,000 units a year in 2023. Um, and they will all, they're will they also ramping up production of the uh, uh the F150 Lightning uh their full-size pickup truck uh which is due to go on sale in the spring uh that uh they uh they when they in- initially showed that publicly last May they started taking uh <clears throat> reservations for that truck and uh they have now reached 200,000 reservations for the F150 Lightning. Uh, and they have shut off the regulation uh, the reservation system. Uh, they're not taking any more reservations uh, starting uh, in the next couple of weeks. They will start converting those reservations over to official orders. Um, and customers can can get their orders in and start taking delivery of those trucks in the next few months. Um, and uh, Ford CEO Jim Farley has said that by uh, by 2023 or yeah, 2024, they're targeting 600,000 EV sales a year in North America, uh, which is a pretty large number. Um, They're, they're increasing their production capacity for the F-150 as well as adding that capacity, additional capacity for the aviator and Explorer uh, and also the, uh, the e-transit van, which is uh, going on sale shortly as well. Uh, To build all of these uh, electric vehicles, of course, is going to take enormous quantities of batteries uh, and most of the major OEMs have announced plans to uh, invest directly in battery production and cell production uh, as well as in um, getting into some of the raw materials, supporting some of the raw material production for those batteries and getting uh, and the recycling of uh, used batteries, of -of end-of-life batteries, to get those raw materials in order to produce more new batteries. Uh, Last week, GM announced two deals um, uh, that are part of that. They previously, earlier this year, announced a partnership with uh, a company called Controlled Thermal Resources to produce uh, lithium in California in the Salton Sea from geothermal brine. Um, and, uh, last week Stellantis announced a similar deal with Vulcan energy in Germany to do the same thing to produce, uh, lithium from geothermal brine in Germany. Um, uh, now GM has announced two more partnerships with, uh, vacuum schmelz, um, to build a, ba- uh, a factory to manufacture permanent, ma- or permanent magnets, uh, here in the U S by 2024 and also a separate deal with MP materials for domestic production of rare earth material, rare earth metals, uh, which are crucial to manufacturing those permanent magnets that are a key part of the uh, the motors that will be required for all of these vehicles. So uh, automakers are getting uh, more heavily, they're, they're moving towards more vertical integration across the board for batteries, motors, uh, and many of the other key components that make up the um, the uh, future electric vehicles, uh, although uh, GM also uh, there was also a third partnership that GM announced with uh, POSCO Chemical, a uh, cr- South Korean company, uh, for a joint venture to build uh, a North American plant for cathode active materials. So that's the uh, the nickel, the manganese, cobalt, and uh, aluminum materials that go into the the cathodes. So all all these uh, all these pieces of supply chain manufacturers want to make sure that they have some control over that. So because they've, they've learned the lesson of the past year of uh, the, the fragility of our global supply chains and they don't want to be stuck without the materials they need to build the vehicles that they, that they plan to build over the next decade.
2: Question for you, Sam, on Toyota. Uh, obviously, a really aggressive increase uh, of their EV goals. Um, you mentioned it's, uh, I think, almost doubled over mm-hmm. a four-week period. Um, certainly, they must be seeing the increase in consumer demand. But is there any other catalysts you're seeing in the market for for that kind of a substantive increase over, you know, a, a one-month period to change their mind in that kind of way? Is there, is there anything else going on, uh, particularly in the last maybe year or two, or?
0: Yeah, I mean, certainly over the, over the last year, and if you look at the European market from the beginning of twenty twenty, um, they as of November of this year, um, battery electric vehicle um, market share in Europe is now up to about eleven and a half percent, and almost nine an additional nine percent of plug in hybrids on top of that. So, plug in plug in electric vehicle sales, you know, are now over one fifth of the market in Europe. Uh, similarly, in China, we're seeing huge adoption of electric vehicles in China. So, you know, they're they're seeing that, uh, you know, between that, you know, of the the vehicles that are already on sale uh, in those markets, you know, being bought by consumers, as well as the substantial interest in you know vehicles that are coming to market here in North America, like the F one fifty, the Mach E, and and. Of course, you know, vehicles from companies like startup companies like Rivian uh, and uh, Lucid, as well as, of course, Tesla, which is uh, for now still the market leader in EVs. Um, they're, they're seeing that, that there's a lot of increased interest, um, you know, where, where EVs are available um, and they're in market segments that are the ones that people actually want to buy. Um, they are buying them. All right. Any other uh, comments or questions?
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, it, so, so it sounds like, um, like Tesla is going to become – sorry, not Tesla. Um, Lexus is going to become a fully electric uh, brand of Toyota um, in the next uh, – within this decade, it seems.
0: Yeah, and, and that's similar to what we're seeing for a lot of premium brands, uh, you know, Jaguar. Uh, Jaguar Land Rover already announced that Jaguar uh, will be all electric from 2025, 2026 timeframe. Um, I spoke with their director of product planning, uh, Rob Filipovich during the LA auto show. And he confirmed that, that that's, that's their plan um, uh, at uh, Volkswagen group. Um, Audi uh, is going all electric by about 2032, I think, or so. Um, and they'll be launching their last, generation of internal combustion vehicles uh, around 2026 uh and then after that it's nothing but electric um and uh, also the uh even the bentley brand uh is going all electric uh this decade uh as is rolls royce so premium brands globally uh and volvo is another one uh they're, they're all planning to go electric uh, yep. you know those those customers have shown a significant uh significantly greater interest in buying evs certainly from tesla um and uh so every you know they're all moving that direction quickly and then the mainstream uh the more mainstream models the lower lower cost models are also uh increasingly going to be available so um uh in the next week or so hyundai will start selling uh the new ionic 5 uh, here in the U.S., um, and that's going to have a range of up to 300 miles. Uh, the next uh, few weeks after that, Kia will be launching its EV6 off the same platform. Uh, GM uh, last week uh, also said that uh, you know they will be introducing electric versions of the uh, Equinox and Blazer, two of their best-selling compact and mid-size crossovers, um, with the, the electric Equinox having a starting price of about $30,000. So there's there's definitely a lot of product coming to market right now uh as of uh a, a few weeks ago we had 20 electric vehicle nameplates available in the US market by this time next year we'll have 40 and a year after that it'll be close to double that again so there's there's a lot of vehicles available for consumers that want to buy them and it's looking increasingly like they they do in fact want to buy those vehicles when they're available
1: yeah yeah, and I, I think um, yeah. In addition to that, customer demand for 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 for, for fully electric vehicles. Um, yeah, you know, I think the, the the ice band, especially in many European countries, are uh, will, will be coming into effect around that timeline, and mm-hmm. many cities in Europe as well. Um, they will be even more stringent restrictions, so that you you cannot even access the, the city with with a uh, with an ice vehicle. So. Yeah, uh, you know, especially these premium brands, what will we'll need to have an offering that, um, you know, people in these cities can, can use.
0: Well, even brands like BMW and, and others, um, you know, that are selling currently selling a lot of plug-in hybrids, they're now implementing on those vehicles, uh, you know, so-called uh, green zones or E-zones um, because some of those cities, you know, that you've mentioned uh, like London and Paris that want to ban internal combustion vehicles from city centers, um, you know, they they will potentially allow plug-in hybrids uh-huh. if they uh, are set up to automatically switch to electric drive once they reach a certain perimeter of that uh, that central portion of the city. Um, so outside of that, you can use it as a regular hybrid or internal combustion vehicle. Once it once you get inside that zone, it must be electric operation only. Uh, so companies like BMW and others are setting up this automatic geofencing of the ev operation
1: yeah
3: now okay so the banning the ice vehicles from city centers and you said paris and stuff like that do you ever see that coming to the u.s or eventually coming to the u.s because there's a lot of i mean look how many vehicles are in this country um that you would have to convert or you know Sell the vehicle and buy an electric vehicle before you can go downtown.
0: Um, yeah, you know, we've got about 290 mil- million registered vehicles in the United States, um, and I, I do potential I do eventually see some cities moving in that direction. Uh, Manhattan, in particular, you know they've they've started to move towards a implementing a congestion zone in the city, and that's kind of how it started in London with a congestion zone, where you know to go and in, drive into the Central London, you had to pay, what was it, 25 pounds a day? I think, uh, Saji?
1: Um, it's in, in total combined with the congestion charging. Yeah, it's, it's about that. Um, but it starts yeah. off, yeah, as I said, just for congestion, it was about 10 pounds a day. And then you have an okay. additional surcharge for, for so called dirty vehicles.
0: Yeah. So, uh, you know, they're doing that in New York. Um, and I can see, you know, the timeline, I think, you know, to do that is going to be a lot longer. But I can see a point in time, you know, in places like Manhattan or, you know, some downtown areas of, you know, San Francisco, for example, um, where, you know, they would say, you know, inside the zone, only EVs are allowed. Um, that, I think that is a realistic proposition at some point.
1: Hmm. And I, I think perhaps they may they may target um, ride-hailing companies first. Um, that's something else we've seen in Europe, mm-hmm. that they will be the first – Uh, that would need to have um, EVs or
0: zero emission vehicles. Yeah. Ride hailing, taxis, you know, any sort of mobility service. Interesting.
2: I think you're safe in Georgia for a while, Christian.
0: Yeah. That's what I was going (laughs) to (laughs) say. Yeah. I don't, I don't think Atlanta is going to, going to do that anytime soon, but, uh, but definitely some other cities.
3: the, The question then comes to, to, as you're doing this, And in the city centers and everything, it will eventually start to move into bigger radiuses around those cities and to other cities and
0: everything. I think, I I think, you know, like once you get beyond, you know, the city centers, I think the timeline for um, blocking internal combustion engines is going to be a lot longer, Um, you know, particularly, especially here in the US where we tend to be a lot more spread out, um, Mm -hmm. you know, whereas, you know, in, in places like Europe or China or, you know, South Korea or Japan, uh, you know, or a lot of other parts of the world, you have very large, very densely populated urban areas. Um, you know, and the you know you also have more uh, more opportunities to travel by other means between cities. You know, especially high speed rail. Uh, we don't we don't have that here as much. We have a lot more people that live in suburban and rural areas here. And so I I wouldn't see that, you know, becoming a a national thing. I think it's going to be limited to certain specific urban centers for quite a lot longer here in the U.S. than in some other parts of the world. All right. Well, I think that's it for this week. Um, And uh, we'll be back with you in two weeks. And thanks for listening. Bye.
1: Thank you.